Human rights photographer and Wellingtonian Robin Hammond has taken second prize in the internationally acclaimed World Press Photo Competition and today he is right on our doorstep about to be inducted into the Massey Creative Hall of Fame. Welcome to B-Side Stories on Access Radio, Robin. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Wilton. 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 Green Wilton. Yeah, so um, so all my life uh, we lived in the same house in Wilton. Nice. And it was great. It was, it was really, we had the hills to grow, run around in and the parks to play rugby and cricket. And uh, it's um, very, it was very far away from <laughs> the, the places that I work in. But, um, but I think, you know, as, as, a, as a kid, I mean, that, that becomes your world. Yeah, right? so, yeah. But I it's think a good that world. in hindsight, I think... Lucky little bugger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bet but you do at the now. time, <laughs> at the time, you know, I remember lying in the grass at home, looking up at planes going by, and thinking, oh, "I so wish I was on that plane going somewhere else." You know? Yeah. It's like I just wanted to be going anywhere. It didn't matter where the plane was going. I just wanted to go. Inside. You know, you got to be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, you now, do. Now I spend all my time in <laughs> planes and airports going to places actually where I sometimes rather not be going, and would, would love to be spending more time in Wellington. But you bought that on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So when did the photography journey start? Was there some kind of pivotal moment that you felt like that was something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, growing up I had no really real interest in photography, just like anyone else. Um, but I've been living, I was living in Japan um, and for two years. And in that, when I knew that I was coming back, so before I went to Japan, I was working in an insurance company and I was... Um, Robin, I a, can't see you in insurance No, now. I don't know. And I, don't, <laughs> I think, no, it, it, I couldn't, there's no way I could go back there. But then that was actually the point. When I, was, when I was due to come back to New Zealand from Japan, I was like, I can't go back to that job. I'd never studied and I was like, well, what, what would be interesting? And I had the vague interest in photography. And but I think... What I was more interested in was the romantic idea of being a photographer and traveling to exotic places and, you know, having adventure. Right. Um, and so, You've certainly put, put that off yeah, as well. Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, the reason why I started it and the reason I continue are obviously very, very different. But, but, but that's why I applied to study at Massey University and right. um, study photography. And, uh, but then it was at, only at Massey where I really discovered what photography is yeah. and what my potential role in it could be. Yeah. Was there a moment along that way where, where the human rights or the questioning issue started to happen? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it was it was here at Massey when I, I went through to the photo section in the library and I picked up a book by an American photographer, W. Eugene Smith, and he'd done a, wow. a series of work on um, in Minamata, which is a Japanese fishing village, and those people there had been poisoned by mercury from from pollution from a nearby factory, right? And those people were getting sick, and children were being born with deformities. Anyway. This book, like, uh, I never, there was, had never been a series of photos that made me uh, care so much about a people I would never meet or a place I would never yeah. go to. And, and I didn't realize the power, that the photography had that power. And so um, when, I, when I finished reading that book, I kind of thought, actually, this is, maybe this is something I could do with my work. And I had an interest in human rights. And I think that all my life I had this sense that, you know, the world is like some gross injustices going on all yeah. over the world. But the, the, I'd never got that there could be a connection between taking pictures mm. of that, exposing that, and maybe with the hope that some difference comes out of it. So some, some change. Now, you won an award, didn't you, from... W. Eugene Smith, yeah. Right. So there's, 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 a, there's a big photojournalism award called the W. Eugene Smith Memorial Award, and I, and I received that last year in New York. And what was that for? 
So that was for the work that I've been doing on mental health in African the, countries the in condemned, crisis. Exactly, right. condemned. So, wow. congratulations. Yeah. It must have been an amazing thing to happen to yeah. you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, full it, circle again. It is like a full circle. But also, that work, when I started doing it, it was very hard to get support for it. And there was a lot of people who were like, you know, didn't really, I think a lot of people yeah. wouldn't see the value in, in covering this issue. And so, so it's kind of like a vindication, really, of, of you know, of in the face of a lot of people's not thinking that it was worthy doing it anyway and then and then being recognized for it and you know and I'm like I'm like I guess a lot of artists who are incredibly insecure and doubtful about their work so <laughs> to be acknowledged that you know that people yeah. think that, that is good that's actually really flattering yeah. and sort of you know makes the work sort of a little bit more worthwhile but you know the other thing which is really important about it is there's a, a check that comes with it, which means I, I can continue the work. Good, good. Because um, I still think That's there's a lot, to lot, lots to do. Yeah. And um, and the other thing, which other thing, which is really important about it, is that it means that the issue becomes a bit more noticed. Definitely. And the, the, like awards in themselves have no value, except that uh, I think they they have the the work become relevant again. And it's always about for me how can I make this work continue to be relevant because there's more people that I want to touch with this work and um, and I think there's a lot of people who don't know about the situation and if, if winning an award means that uh, the work is reborn and they can more people see it then that's that's a good thing Is this the work that we are able to see of yours down at through the World Press Exactly so, so, the, so the work um, won a, a prize at World Press this year so well, the World, World Press is great because the, the, the audience that goes go to see the exhibition is huge mm. so and you know this all comes from a fundamental belief that um, I can't expect anybody to do something about a situation they don't know about so my so I hadn't, so it's about raising people's awareness, and there's still there's still no guarantee that anyone will do anything about it. But at least people can't say they didn't act because they didn't know. Obviously, you've pulled to Africa a lot. How did you start to want to pursue telling the story? So it was it was kind of by accident. I was actually in um, South Sudan, right, um, to cover the referendum for independence. So um, you know, South Sudan was getting the opportunity to vote whether or not it was going to be independent or remain part of Greater Sudan. Wow. And, um, and we, we, were, we were trying to tell a story about, about this vote for independence, but also we were quite keen to tell a story this with the newspaper um, that had commissioned me. Myself and the journalists were quite keen to talk about what had happened in the country's history to lead up to this point, which was, was a terrible war and many people displaced. Mm. But what we stumbled across is actually also the complete um, destruction of infrastructure and yeah. the neglect of social services, which meant that the most vulnerable people in the society ended up being stigmatized and abandoned and neglected, and in this case, put in prison. They were put, that's, that was their mm. sort of idea of care, is lock them in prison. So I, um, we went to the prison and um, the story became, yes, this was a hopeful time for a potentially new country, right. but at what cost? And there was obvious cost of death and destruction. But there's also the cost of people suffering trauma from the horrors that they've experienced. But also people who have existing mental disability, what happens to them when the infrastructure of care that should be looking after them collapses? And so that became the beginning of a greater story because as the media, we're always going to cut to Africa to cover famine or, or war or, yes. or floods. <laughs> but we don't think about the aftermath of that and we don't think about the mental health impacts of those things. We Especially, quickly move away. Exactly, we? we move away yeah. like it's finished, mm. like it's over. But if you've lived through it, it's mm. clearly not over. If your family's been killed or you've been tortured or, or you're, you've watched your little child starve to death, what's the mental health? impact of that so 
I thought the media have hardly covered this. I'd worked with many, many non-governmental organizations all over Africa. I'd seen none of them do anything on mental health. So I started mm-hmm. investigating and, and, and went to a few more countries and realized that this is a much bigger issue than I ever right. realized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and wow. even I was ignorant of it. It was only because of that one moment of, uh, I, of going into that prison in South Sudan that it just sparked something. It's like, hang on, this, this can't be unique. What were you doing going into a prison in South Sudan? Was that part of the journalism story? Well, what, what happened is, is that when, when we were going, when we went to South Sudan, there were many journalists there already. Right. And we had to find a different angle on the story. Other, it was for the referendum of independence. And it wasn't going to be good enough for us to talk about the actual vote itself. We needed to make a, find another angle. Mm. And I saw a mentally disabled girl begging on the side of the road. And I said to my driver, what do you do with people with mental disability in this country, and I asked him that, given you know, knowing that that the country had been through this conflict yeah. and infrastructure had been destroyed, and he and he was the one who said to me, "Oh, we put them in prison." So I said, "Okay, stop the car, let's go to the prison." And so that's when wow. the, the, so that's when the story became, "Yes, this is about the referendum for independence. This is this is what's happening right now, but this is also the cost of mm. getting to this point." Um, and then that just sort of set something in me that sort of, you know, I'd been to many many countries in Africa and I'd covered crises but never thought about the mental health impact um, and, and I think that in the West we're very aware that when our soldiers return from conflict zones that you know there is a mental health impact of that of witnessing Absolutely. their suffering and, and being through war but for some reason and um, for some reason we I don't know when it comes to Africans you know, Africans suffer no less because they're African obviously I mean it's like everyone knows that on an intellectual level but we kind of, I don't know what we think, why we think that, um, well, why we don't even think about the mental health impacts in Africa. And it's, it's like, it's devastating. In a country like Somalia, the World Health Organization predicts that one in three Somalis will suffer a severe mental illness sometime in their lifetime. One in three. Now, the, wow. now the World Health Organization can inoculate all of Somalia, a failed state, can inoculate all of them from polio. But when it comes to mental health, they don't touch it. And it's a, it's a case I saw over and over and over again. It's not just that people with mental disability are neglected within their countries. It goes right up the food chain right. to these massive organizations. And, yep. and the reason for that, I believe, is that people with mental disability are not allowed to advocate for themselves. And it's not that they can't. It's just that no one will listen to them because they're, in quotes, crazy. And so what it means is that those of us who can advocate for them should. And so that's yep. sort of like the, the sort of the thing behind the story is that I you know I have this fundamental belief that with witnessing comes a certain amount of responsibility and that I've witnessed this now I have a responsibility to tell other people about it and now that other people see it I hope that they take on the responsibility too and think we can't you know if we just sit by and let these people suffer I think that we become complicit in their suffering yeah so now there, there are massive gaps between seeing some of the suffering and people taking action. Action, that's right. But I'm hoping, it's like you said, if people can be moved, if, and I hope they're moved enough to think, well, we can't just sit by and let this happen. That's mm. the idea behind it. Yeah. I mean, as you can tell, I, yeah. I, I get quite fired up about yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. You know, because I, I, then, and the reason why I get fired up about it is because despite being to 10 different countries and, and focusing on this issue for nearly three and a half years, not much has really changed. We've been able to help a few individuals but you know, if you if if you went so of those photos, if you went back to those places, the 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 the, the people that you see chained up in church basements or tethered to sex in refugee camps or locked away in prisons, they'll still be there. So I actually think that I haven't succeeded. Right. My job yep. is, is not done. So I, I that's why I'm nice, like I'm desperate to make something happen on this. Mm. 
What has kept drawing you to Africa? So the reason I went there for the first place, I think, in the first place is because it, I think it seemed exotic and exciting and right. mysterious to me. But the reason why I continued to go back there, one is because, you know, you, there's a situation of when, when you cover an issue, other people ask you to keep covering it. You kind, right, of, yep. you kind of get put in a box. But I don't mind that, actually, because Africa is such a, a huge, diverse place and there's mm. so much to do. Um, but also, I'm really fascinated by Africa because... It is such a big, diverse continent, yeah. and I still think that there's massive ignorance about the continent of Africa. You know, it's, it's a continent of nearly a billion people, 54 different countries, many, many more cultures, and I think a lot of people still see Africa as the dark continent, um, and we still treat it as one single country, I mean, there's such diversity there. So I think that there's a big job for journalists to do in order right. to sort of have the rest of the world understand Africa. So, I mean, it's, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's just really, really fascinating. And I think that... Um, you know, there's, there's many, many challenges working there in terms of like, um, you know, the way that people interact with you and also, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, the challenges of, of people in authority abusing their authority and there's challenges of accessing mm. places. But, you know, in general, um, while I say that Africa is very, very diverse and very, very, each country and each region is very, very different, Africans in general, I've found are very, very warm. Yeah. And... Um, and welcoming, and I think there's a there's a cultural thing that I think that we maybe in the West we maybe in New Zealand you know I think being a being a smaller country we still have this to a certain extent that sort of warmth right. and welcoming, but I think that in a lot of the countries I've been to in in, the, in Western countries that's sort of unfortunately kind of diminishing, and right. I think that I think even in the biggest cities that I've been to in Africa like you know Lagos is a city of nearly 20 million people, but even there wow. there's there's still this feeling of when you meet people it's like um, you're in a small village and they'll be like, oh, maybe I'll see you tomorrow. It's like, there's no way you're going to see me tomorrow. <laughs> you know, there's 20 million people here. Beautiful. But, but it's kind of like, you know, and I remember so clearly <laughs> the last time I was in Zimbabwe, which was a few years ago now, but the last time I was in Zimbabwe and I was walking down the street and I saw someone coming towards me and he greets me with this amazing big grin. I thought, oh, do I know him? And he just said, good morning. And he just walked on by. I'd never seen him before. We'll never see him again. It was just like a, just like a, such a warm greeting, you know, and it's kind of like, Man, it's just—it's so nice to have that um, closeness to the strangers, which I think, unfortunately, we, we we miss a little bit now. I think in some of the, some of the Western cultures. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but the African community is growing quite mm. healthily here in Wellington and right. in New Zealand. When I left Wellington, that the African community wasn't so big, no. but I, I have noticed, you know, when I get in a taxi these days, that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think, Somalis now, and yeah, there's a big Somali community. Yes, many. I've got new friends from Ghana. Right. Okay. I mean, I think it's, it's fantastic. Good. You know, yeah. I think, I think this, this, it's, it's, it only adds to the richness of our country. Coming from the fashion industry, I just have seen your shots for the first time, the dark side of denim. Right. Um, have you had any flack or recognition from Gap and Levi's by exposing these shots? Yeah, so when we did that story, it, um, we published it in the Sunday Times, and at the same time, I did some filming for Sky News in the UK. And uh, Gap responded, their director came onto, onto television to respond to the accusations. Um, wow. And they started an investigation into their supply chain. Um, and, and, and subsequently, things have had to change in Lesotho because of that. But, um, and, you know, there's, there's been incentives to try and set up uh, for foreign businesses to set up there. And a lot of Taiwanese right. have come in and set up these factories. Um, but there's not, there are regulations on paper, but I don't think they're monitored very stringently. Mm. So, you know, I, I, you know, I get it. They're, they're, they're trying to make a buck and they're trying to sometimes, sometimes they cut corners. And unfortunately, what they were doing is that that meant that they weren't treating their waste as well as they could. It means that they, um, 
they were putting very toxic waste into the rubbish dumps people that where people go to yeah. collect items and and they were poisoning the rivers and um and it was you know very very graphic from the from the images uh, what was going on so so uh, Levi's wrote a letter that they would investigate this this supply chain and uh and um Gap came on TV and and did the same Hunted up yeah, yeah. but the, the reason the reason that 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 story was so impactful is that our audience in this case was the British audience who right. buy Gap and buy Levi's and the reason why Gap and Levi's had to respond is because they were worried obviously about their market mm. share which is interesting when you compare it to something like mental health yeah where it doesn't necessarily you know no pe- one's pe- pe- got the the impetus right so, so, pe- so people think it's got nothing to do with me yeah as far away as their problem you know whereas with Gap and Levi's these are the consumers of those products so so, but that, but that's where, you know, the the challenge lies in sort of engaging audiences with with work, which they feel that has nothing to do with them. It's like, how how can I make them feel like it is something to do with yeah. them? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Good good challenge. <laughs> good challenge. Also, climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tavulu. Mm-hmm. Um, they were beautiful images, oh, and what led you to to want to pursue giving us a visual of what what it's like for, there for them. So um, I was due to come back to New Zealand to see my family, and right. I was like, you know, it had been a long time since I've done any stories in New Zealand, and I really wanted to do mm. something in the region. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember where I originally got the idea from, but I knew there was a big Tuvaluan um, population in New Zealand, and then I found wow. out yep. that the Tuvaluan population is enormous compared to the population of Tuvalu. So there's something like, uh, I, I don't know if I've got the figures exactly right, but it's something like, 9,000 Tuvaluans and 4,000 of them live in and around Auckland so and they're, they're, they're leaving Tuvalu because it's, life there is becoming unsustainable you know they it's very expensive to live there because they have to import almost all their food right and the reason they have to do that is because because of um, the, the, the islands are being washed away and, and the sea, when, when the high tides come you can see the seawater coming through the ground so the, so the, the soil becomes salinated and it means that the, their taro crop dies so they have to re- so not to mention that there's, there's very little work there as well mm. but you know like the young people are all leaving and there's very few people left there now so um, wow yeah so it was really sort of uh, and it was it was around the time of the anniversary of the Kyoto Protocol, I think, that I did that work. So yeah. um, we managed to sort of hook it into this anniversary. And, and you know, I think journalists a lot talk about climate change, but it's often hard to see it. Yes. And so... Exactly. Yeah. So well done. So, so you know, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, was, it was an opportunity to sort of really illustrate this is the real impact. Yeah. What would the people of uh, Tuvalu, what what would they like to say to us? Do you well, think? I, I think they they feel very isolated. Right. You know. Yep. I, I think that they, um, you know, obviously they're very they're very aware of their situation because they live it every day. But I I still think despite there has there been some media um, exposure of it, I still think they feel that they're not being listened to. Yeah. So I think that you know, I think it's the same thing again. You can't do something about something you don't know about. And they would like people to know about it. And then obviously assistance to come. Coming back and just reading your story about ending up in jails and in Africa, mm-hmm. seeing what you've seen, and then coming back to little old New Zealand, even though we're whinging and complaining and mm. we're all trying to rattle the can around election time, most of us are still sitting on that nice quarter acre block. Yeah. 
seeing what you've seen, what would you say to us? So, you know, I was, I was driving down the motorway the other day. My, my parents live out in Upper Hutt, and I was driving down the motorway, and there's lots of traffic coming in the opposite direction. No one was tooting their horn. It was a beautiful uh, evening, and I could see the, the mountains covered in snow, and the sun was setting. And I thought, and I just thought, oh my God, this country is amazing. This is so, so beautiful, and we're so lucky. But I th- really think that we take that for granted. And I, I really, so I said this before, and I'll say it again. I, I don't believe that we should care less about people because they're far away. And I actually think that we have a moral obligation, as people so lucky, to be born into a place so lucky, mm-hmm. um, to be born so fortunate that we have a moral obligation to help people less fortunate than ourselves. Yeah. And we take it for granted. And I know that you know, it all becomes relative, right? It all becomes, when you only think about New Zealand, the issues that we have to deal with seem, I'm sure, so serious and they are serious I don't want to I don't want to no, downplay it but you know um, but when you compare it to a lot of the places I've been you know I, I really I really kind of think um, okay yeah you know, one we shouldn't take for granted how lucky we are but I do really believe that borders cannot be an excuse right for, for not caring and I and you know I would I just wish that well not just New Zealand but everyone in the world would have a more um, think about global humanity and not just about the humanity in New Zealand, you know. So I, I think the one the one thing that I, you know that I've been taught going to the places I've been to and seeing what I've seen is um, is I don't take for granted now how lucky I was or how, how lucky I am. Yeah, your topics that you choose are really weighted, but that doesn't take away from the beauty in your work and obviously. You've been acknowledged for that. Have you got a motto or something that you always work by to keep providing that excellence in what you do? Well, I, you know, fundamentally, the, the work is about making a connection. And I hope that, you know, if, if, if people perceive it as beauty, as beautiful, I, I kind of think that's a good thing because I think it, it makes people look deeper into the work. Mm. And I think that also... Um, that beauty shouldn't be reserved for the well-off or the middle class. Mm. You know, there is beauty and dignity um, in in people who don't live so well as well. You know, um, I think so. The work is about um, my job is to create stories that connect to people with people, and I really hope that's what my work does. Work does, and um, and I hope the the most important thing for me is is to break down those those barriers of race, religion, skin colour and distance so that people won't care less because people are far away or of a different colour. And uh, and I really, really hope that that connection can be made to the extent where people feel like they um, can't sit by idly and let uh, injustice go on.